This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So, I've been doing what I do for a long time, and there are certain things that I would say are common amongst uh, our generation uh, of, of believers uh, in the condition, the culture that we're in. And I'm not saying that some of these things weren't prevalent in previous generations. I can't comment on that in a great level because most biographies don't go into great depth of what all the common sins were. They just sort of give the list and the general list. And yet we have very specific weaknesses, very specific uh, points where the devil can trip us uh, effectively. And it, it proves effective, and that's why he keeps doing it. He keeps uh, hitting on those exact fronts. And so when I sit down with uh, a group of Christians and we're wrestling through unto strength and victory, inevitably certain things come up. And the, the content of First John is one of them. First John is an absolutely beautiful book. It's, and I've said this before when I've talked about uh, John and his writings. Uh, they're the most simple writings in the entire Bible. And you'd almost get the feeling that he's writing to children. And even a child could understand it. And yet they possibly are the most complex. Because what you think is simple, as you stare at it, you're like, if that's true, then. And the ramifications of that being true, it's almost too clear. We'd rather have it be mysterious. It's like, could you speak to me in, uh, in story that is confusing God and mysterious where I can't figure it out and then I can blame it on the fact that I can't understand it. This is too clear. And it's almost so clear that we trip over it. And so as I bring some of these things to the surface, it could actually exacerbate some problems before we fix them. In other words, some of you feel insecure in your relationship with Christ, potentially. Okay, There's a, I'm trusting that the Spirit of God is bringing this to the surface for a reason. I mean, why am I preaching on this? I even told Sandy when I was sending in the notes, like, I don't know why this is the topic for today. I mean, I could pick a lot easier topic. This is a hard one uh, to address. And it is, makes me fully dependent upon the articulation of the Spirit of God to be able to say it. I understand this. What's weird is I don't trip over this. And I don't know that I could say I ever have tripped over it. Other, I mean, I've thought about it. I've, I know the Scripture. And I've queried my own soul in regards to it. But it's never been a stumbling block for me. So, at the same time, it's a very significant one in our generation. So, for whatever reason, it's being brought to the surface, and maybe it's for you. So, uh, let's move forward. Sinner or saint? And you guys know I like to divide everything in twos, not because that's just my way of doing it. It's how the Bible does it. It It's always breaking things into twos. And so you have flesh and you have spirit. You have darkness, you have light, you have... Uh, death, you have life, uh, you have the, sh- the goats, you have the sheep, you have the tares, you have the wheat. And there's twos. There seems to be a division uh, between two kingdoms. And it's very important in our life to recognize that there's two births. 
And so you have a, a first birth, which is out of your mother's womb. But there's supposed to be a second birth. And it's a birth in the person of Jesus Christ. And if that birth has occurred, then there is a very real newness to your life. There are signs of life that are shown. If those signs of life are not being shown, then it's very possible you never had a second birth, which creates the awkwardness that I'm getting close to and brushing up against in this message. Is It's the examination and the test that we are asked to bring ourselves through to see if we are in the faith. And to be honest, it'd be easier if it was never said in the Bible and we could just sort of have the power of positive thinking to say, I'm fine. I'm fine the way I am. I'm fine the way I am. Okay. And if I just think I'm fine the way I am, then maybe I'm fine the way I am. As opposed to allowing the test of scripture to examine us, to allow the spirit of God to alert us if there are warning signs. Are we what we think we are? And so this is actually healthy for any of us at any juncture in our life. And that's why for me, I will constantly go back to Matthew 25 and see sheep and goats and ask myself where I am. I actually desire that. And that's one of the things I want to bring to the surface. Why would I desire that? Why would I desire conviction? Because conviction is a sign of life. And so when I'm being convicted, I know I have a father in heaven. If I'm not being convicted and I'm fine just the way I am living in sin and and defeat and rebellion, whoa, something's wrong here. And so that's exactly what I want to bring to the surface is there's actually signals that will give you the comfort of salvation, that will allow you to know that there is health in your life, even though you're a work unfinished. There's still a sign of life. And then there's also signals that will show that you're living in darkness, you're living in rebellion. So facing the test of 1 John head on. Do you guys hear the rhyme in that? I liked that this morning. I was feeling really good about that. I just don't know. I had to point it out to you, which sort of dis- dismisses some of the value of the poetry. But <clears throat> my dad's uh, philosophy was when you tell a joke, never explain it. If no one laughs, then just act like it was a normal statement. Uh, <clears throat> that's probably the same with poetry. If you ever tell good poetry, don't point it out. But that is really good. <clears throat> Amen. I get an amen for that. Uh, Eric, the father. So most of you know I have six kids, four adopted. And so this message in 1 John, you know, John is addressing the body, the believers, as little children, which is a really interesting statement. Uh, We are little children. We have been born again. There is something within us, the spirit within us that is crying out, Abba. Father, the most intimate phraseology of Papa, Daddy. Something has changed inside of us. So as a father, it's interesting, but I have learned so much through experiencing fatherhood in my spiritual life. Because when I recognize that I, as an earthly father, have such depth of care for my kids, that I would gladly lay down my life for my kids, and I'll get this, that I, though I desire my kids to obey me perfectly, though I desire them to have zero effects of sin in their life, and I desire to see it eradicated wholly and fully, as a father, I love them in spite of the fact that they're unfinished business. That's actually very significant in light of what we're about to study today, is that many of us, when we approach First uh, John and sort of land, especially in chapter 3, and start going through it, 
we can immediately begin to say, I don't think I'm a child. I don't think I belong in this family. If this is true, then I have no business even hanging out in the church. Something's seriously wrong with me. And just because I discipline my children doesn't mean they should panic and think that their father doesn't love them. The fact that my children are being disciplined should show them that they have a loving father. If I didn't care, then they could wonder, does he even recognize me here? Am I really a part of the home? Or did I sneak in a back door and have just sort of been squatting in the, in the basement room? I mean, is this my family? Is this my home? The fact that I will go out of my way to discipline a child should cause them to say, oh, I have a father. Praise God. And as a father, my delight in them isn't their perfection. It isn't the fact that they do everything perfectly. I have a love for my children. And there are certain signals in my child's development that would be signs of health. And it isn't, ironically, perfect behavior. It is a desire towards that. In other words, if a child really could care less and wants to get away from the house, doesn't want to parent, doesn't, you know, just spits in the face and says, hey, I'm out of here. That's not a good sign of what we could call sonship. In other words, I don't want to please you. I don't care what you think. You see, when sonship is forming within us or daughtership, there is a bond, a desire to please. There is a yearning to be close. There is a desire for approval. There is something very real that bonds us and causes us to actually not want that behavior anymore. Any behavior that would hinder me from entering into that fellowship, I want it gone. I want to be as my father would desire me. And so we're going to create a contrast between the two today. Eric the father. Now in Matthew 7, God is appealing to this very concept of, as if it's written to me, Eric, you know, you as a father, just think. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He actually appeals on the front of earthly fatherhood and says, do you see how earthly fatherhood works? Do you see how you will, even though you're earthly, and he calls me evil, which didn't feel good, but hey, I accept it. In other words, that there is something wrong here. I am not the perfect holy picture of him, but I have limitations. I have that residue of the earth upon me that even I will do certain things. And he says, how much more would I, as a heavenly father, a perfect father, do this? And so I'm going to draw attention to the how much more. We'll call it the how much more principle. How much more would God do it? If I, I my child may disobey, you know, I, my children are here, and, you know, if I were to ask uh, if they have ever disobeyed, uh, it would be a really awkward moment for them, but I'm going to just tell you for them. Yes, there has been disobedience in my home. I have found that my children need a savior. There have been lies. There have been uh, thefts. Is that the right word? Uh, there have been, or robberies, there have been uh, proud moments, uh, there have been tattletales that have been told, uh, there have been all sorts of antics uh, in the Ludi home that show the opposite of what I desire to see formed in them. And yet, never once have I threatened to remove them from my fellowship. Never once have I said, you will no longer be my child. 
If you do that again, you are out on the streets. It has never come out of my mouth. How much more? You, you follow me? How much more would my heavenly father not desire to lose the fellowship with me, but would labor to correct me unto a healthy fellowship? You see, once you're a child, you're a child. And a father labors to maintain that fellowship. So I want to emphasize the how much more. If we as earthly parents that aren't really that good at times, let's just admit it, we fumble and have foibles all over the place, but we still desire to go the distance with our children. We still desire to labor alongside of them, even though they show us behavior back that is the opposite of what we either have trained them in or would desire for them. My desire to share my home, my name, and my affection with my child. I said with him, with him or her. My desire to do whatever it takes to keep him or her in my family. My desire to see the removal of all that hinders him or her from living strong and right. If I desire that for my children, how much more would God desire that for his children? As a father, I don't expect perfection. Now that, I, I don't like to emphasize a statement like that. For instance, as a pastor, I like there to be a tension in your life. Be ye perfect as he is perfect. Hey, I'm just giving you some scripture. And so, yes, God desires perfection, right? Doesn't he? Of course. Well, what do you think I desire? When I tell my child to take off their shoes, put them on the shelf, come in here, pick up their pile they left in the living room, and take it to their room, and then come up and sit down for dinner, what would I expect? them to do the exact same thing that I just said. However, as a father, though I expect them to obey, I still understand that they are a work in process. So here's what happens. The shoes never quite make it to the shelf because something else happened. One of the kids comes in and says, hey, did you see this? And they go run it off. And then so now the shoes didn't get put on. The pile in the living room didn't get put away. And as a result, they didn't take it out of the room and then come up. They forgot the sequence, right? They never sat at the table. So what does daddy do? I could blow my top. That's, you know, a good daddy thing to do. Uh, I could, you know, penalize them for months, you know, for disobeying. Was it a deliberate disobedience? Not necessarily. It's called foolishness. It's called childishness. In other words, that child isn't saying, no, I'll do what I want. You tell me to put my shoes in the, where, where do we put them? On the shelf? I don't know what, what that thing's called. No, I don't want to. And they throw them at me. And then they take their stuff in the living room and strew it around and say, ha! <laughs> and they take their food and throw it against the wall. And say, I don't even want to eat here. I'm self-sufficient. I'll go out and hunt deer. <laughs> See the difference between the two? There's, there's a difference between that first one, which still didn't do what was right, but it doesn't exclude him from what I would see as part of my relationship with him. It does not even mean that he falls into disrepair in his relationship with me. It's just that he has to immediately correct it. So how he responds, or she, I should throw a she in here too, how he or she responds to my correction when I say, uh, do you remember that I told you to put your shoes on the shelf? Now watch how they respond. If they say, I didn't want to. Or if they say, oops, uh, I'll do that right now. I'm sorry, Daddy. Will you forgive me for not following through on what you asked? You see the difference between the two? One child doesn't even want to please the father. The other one desires to but has some frailties. 
is still a work in process and is learning obedience. So as a father, I don't expect perfection in that sense. I don't expect my children to never make a mistake. But I do expect the evidences of sonship. What's the evidences of sonship? Well, that they would desire to perfectly respond to their imperfections. In other words, there's a right way to respond to an imperfection. That's what I desire to see. And that's what a son or a daughter would have that truly has a bond with a parent. It's like, I'm sorry. Let's make that right. In other words, a healthy child is not healthy because they're perfect. They're healthy because they perfectly respond to their imperfections. That's what I would say makes a great parent, too. It's not that they're perfect. It's that they perfectly respond when they realize that they're imperfect. And so if they have shouted in an improper voice, they've spoken uh, incorrectly to their children, what should they do? That was wrong. Will you guys forgive me? Daddy was not behaving as Christ would behave there. This is how Christ would behave. Daddy is being worked on by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that reality, if you separate out the two, is going to be very important as we enter into 1 John. So the first Adam versus the last Adam. When you hear me teach, I oftentimes will put the first over here, and I'll put the second over here. And so the first Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, right? Remember him? He's the first Adam. That's even what the Bible calls him. He failed. He had a job to do. He was the priest of Eden. He was to care for his bride. He should have, instead of eating that same fruit, should have come to God and said, God, my wife has failed. She has sinned. And then God would have said, well, she must die. God, is there any other way? Well, you could die for her. In other words, the first Adam, there was something better that he should have done. And yet he failed. And as a result, when he sinned, all of his descendants, all that were in him, sinned as well. It's like, is sin passed upon us all? It's a terrible thought, but that's exactly what the bad news is. And so Adam is the sinner, and he is deserving of a just penalty of death. And yet there is another one known as the last Adam, the second man, even though there were 75 generations between Adam and Jesus, in between, Jesus being the 77th generation. He's called the second man. You see, if you remain in Adam, in your sin, and you do not repent and escape and enter into a new birth in Christ, then you are under that just penalty. But when you enter into Christ, you share in his victory and his reward. So Adam, who is a type of him who was to come, Jesus was an Adam. I know it sounds strange, but though he was God, he became as an Adam to be a priest, to stand on behalf of a bride. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And this death, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. This is one man talking about Adam. One man sinned and death spread unto us all. As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. This man, the second man, his righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, for as, me, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So there's different ways we could say it. Sinner, righteous. Okay, we could call it flesh, spirit, Call it darkness, 
life. Today, I'm going to use the concepts of sinner, saint. The saint is the one who is made holy. Jesus is the capital S saint. He is the sanctified one. He is the consecrated one. He is the holy one. Adam is the sinner. And all that live in Christ are saints of God. Put off the old man, put off Adam, and put on the new man, put on Jesus. This is the clear message of Scripture. So the key question of 1 John is, are we in the first or the second? Hey guys, test yourselves. Are you still in the sinner? Are you still clothed in the work of Adam? Are you still justifying your sin, saying, hey, I'm fine the way I am. I don't need a Savior. Or have you humbled yourself and repented of that and come to a Savior and been found in Him? That's key. And so I'm giving you these keys before we start because if you don't have them, you'll trip all over the place in 1 John. Examining the Christian life. Examine yourselves, says Paul in 2 Corinthians, as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So the Apostle John has a test. That's what I'm going to call it today. It's a test. And so you want to test yourself, well just hang out in uh, 1 John. And you'll find that uh, there's a really doozy of a test there. 1 John chapter 3. Now it's important to note that this is chapter 3 in a book. Most of us forget that when we study it or when we read it. That there is a context that is being created by John even before you get here that I will go to, but I want you to just feel this. I want you to just sort of hang out in it uh, for a little bit. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. This is the first piece of the test. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Let's let that hang in the air for a little bit. I'll read it again just to push on the wound a little. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Mm -hmm. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Do you need me to read that one twice too? Okay, do you understand why people trip over this? Well, what are the thoughts? I mean, you have, uh, uh, it's like the demonic host loves whenever 1 John chapter 3 starts being read to sort of move in and make some commentary on the side. Wow. It sounds like you're not a child of God. Uh, I mean, you start going through this room right here, including the guy on the stage, and ask me if I have behaved perfectly this week. Have I made no mistakes? Have I done everything exactly as the Spirit of God has requested of me, knowing what I ought to do in perfect love, in perfect selflessness, in perfect holiness, have I lived? Oh, I don't want to admit it to you, but I haven't. Oh, no! Did you just read that? 
Do I know anything of God? Am I still in Adam? So, okay, you follow me? There's a reason why I'm bringing this to the surface. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So how is he going to know the sinner from the saint? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who, by the way, was a first. You have first and second, Cain and Abel. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Why, why John? How, How do we know that? Because we love the brethren. There's another key test. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abided in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So I don't know how well you fared there. If you're still standing as a Christian or if you've despaired. That's a strong passage. And it's the word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's God's truth. In other words, we shouldn't go into it and try and change it. However, we do need to understand it. And that is extremely important Very possibly for some of us this morning. I'm guessing there's a reason why I'm giving this. So let's get uncomfortable together. Test yourselves. I'm going to go through the short list here. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Are you actively engaged in seeing dross removed? To see chaff removed? Are you actively engaged in the desire to be found likened unto Christ? That's actually a signal to your soul. Whoever abides in him does not sin. That's what it says. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
So you can see why many of us try and avoid that chapter. That's just hard. It's, it's just, what do we do with that? I, we have to almost come up with some kind of creative gymnastics routine to go from chapter 2 and springboard over it into the rest of the New Testament. It's like, how do we get through this and survive in our faith? I mean, come on, I don't know that I've, I've gone anywhere. I, I thought I was a Christian. If all are measured against this test, is anyone actually saved? How do we uphold the clear word of Scripture? Because that's what I want to do this morning. I want to uphold the clear word of Scripture. It says what it says, and it meant what it meant. So how do we uphold the clear word of Scripture and yet not miss the intrinsic hope woven in it? So in other words, as believers, we want to lift high the word of God and bend our knee and say that is truth. Even if it indicts us, even if it says we are wrong, I would want to change. I do not want my children wriggling in their seats today wondering if they really are genuine children of mine and concerned that I, they will find out today or I'll discover them in the house and go, what are you doing here? Well, I, I was sort of hoping that I was your child. You're not my child. You didn't put your shoes away exactly as I told you to. And anyone who is in this house with it, I tell them to put their shoes away and they don't, is not a child of mine. You're a child of the devil. Okay, do you see? How much more so would it be true of the Father in heaven? So how do we appropriate this? I'm going to give you some tools to be able to walk through this. The first one is context. Let's look at why John himself wrote the book, because he's going to tell us why he wrote it. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Boy, that's not exactly what was happening to me in chapter 3. He's writing this to you so that your joy may be full? Boy, that sounds like the opposite effect that these words are having. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen to the context here. This is very interesting in light of what you heard in chapter 3. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Doesn't it sound like John's contradicting himself here? Because I don't, I don't know about you, but in chapter 3, it seems to say that if you have sin, then uh, you know, you're of the devil, and so you might as well give up right now. I mean, it's over. Lights out. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So what seems at first like a contradiction, it's like, okay, hey, you do know that uh, you're, you have sins, right? No, no, I, I don't because I'm a good Christian. How do we balance these things? Paul, uh, John has given us his reason for writing it. So I'm going to use a technique that I've used in past with capitalizing one concept and lowercasing another. When we deal with the idea of sin, and especially in this context, there seems to be a capital S sin, and there seems to be a lowercase s sin. And that's probably the clearest way to help delineate what is taking place in this book. So capital S sin. We're going to liken it to this side of the ledger. Capital S sin is a big deal. 
The evidence that the power of the devil is ruling the life. If you are living in capital S sin, then it is evidence that you are under the devil's rule. It's a demonstration that the life is imprisoned, that you, if you're that one, is imprisoned to the control of self and is still in need of a savior. In other words, if you're still in capital S sin, then you need a savior. You need the gospel. A life ruled by self-interest, self-gain, and self-justification, and all the others in the self-family. Everything that is an expression of self-dominance, self-rulership. I am my own king. I am my own God. I reject God. I don't want to be saved. This is the life I choose. Even if it leads to death? Yes! The defiance of a soul, capital S, sin, shows that there was never a transfer into a kingdom. There is no sign of sonship here. There is no desire to please a father. There is a desire to get away from a father, to shoo that as far away as he can. There is no sign of life. So capital S, sin, is the defining attributes of a sinner. Examples of capital S, sin. These are just examples. Open defiance towards God. I don't want you, God. I don't believe you. But even though I know you're there, I'm going to act like I don't believe you. It's defiance towards God and his word. Premeditated badness, for lack of a better term. In other words, I will do this. I will do it even if there is the subtle thing of conviction that lingers in the air. It's like, I don't care. I'm going to bypass all of what I know to be right in my conscience, and I will do it anyways. Premeditated badness. Hatred of good. If you hate that which is good, it's not a good sign. Disbelief in God. Delight in evil. Where do you find your satisfaction? In God or in evil? You see, these are things that God is bringing to the surface and saying, This, I'm calling it capital S, sin. Now, a sinner controlled by capital S sin is still under a just condemnation and a sentence of judgment. They must repent and believe in the lone source of salvation from capital S sin, which is Jesus Christ. And if they do, they will be saved, clothed in the person of Jesus Christ and spiritually adopted as a child of the Heavenly Father. Now let's talk about lowercase s, sin. Because to make even sense of the rest of the New Testament, the lives that we understand in in, in relationship with God as a father, the evidence that the saint is not God. When you have what we're going to call lowercase s sin, because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So therefore, if any darkness starts to sprout up, guess what? Light shines and goes, what's that? You see, you can't live in defiance of God. I mean, in my home, if my children are like, no, I will do what I want. I mean, they find out really quickly that they have a father. In other words, father's all over that attitude. They can't just go around lying. Why? Because their father's all over it, shining light, and they're going, that needs to go. That will not be in our home. Or what home do you think you came into? God who is light, in whom is no darkness. This is what it means to be a little child. You have entered into a home and now anything within you, we're going to call it dross. Gold has dross. It's an impurity. And as a result, though God is perfect, though God is perfectly pure, 
You're not. Now, you're clothed in his perfection. You have his righteousness. But on the inside of that clothing is a work in process that is being sanctified. And your desire is to have that dross come to the surface and removed. And so when it comes to the surface, we'll call that lowercase s. It is a bad attitude that you had. And guess what? You knew you shouldn't have that bad attitude. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So can we all acknowledge the fact that there are things that we knew we should do or shouldn't do, and we did them? However, a sign of sonship would be, God, I don't want to keep doing that. God, I'm sorry. We want fellowship with our God. We don't just do it defiantly. Hey, I'll do whatever I want. In other words, it's dross coming to the surface. So, lowercase sin, sins might be a better term for it, the evidence that the saint is not God, but evermore and always in need of God. It's a demonstration of the human vulnerability that still remains and a fresh reminder to the saint, that's us, that abiding in Christ is evermore and always essential. Proof that the saint's sanctification is not finished, but still in process. Love is, defi- is, love is the defining attribute of a saint. Remember how I said capital S, sin, is the defining attribute of a sinner? Well, in the contra- contrast to that, love is the defining attribute of a saint. But like gold being ever purified that finds dross rise to the surface, a saint will have lowercase s come to the surface throughout his earthly life as part of the process of his or her sanctification of the Holy Spirit. However, you know one of the number one signs that you are God's child? When that comes to the surface, you don't like it. You don't want it. And you want it removed. God hates that sin. So do you. You see, you don't delight in evil. You actually delight in good. There's been a change of kingdoms. So therefore, your entire framework is different towards that dross that comes to the surface. Examples of lowercase s sin. It's conviction of the Holy Spirit when the saint speaks unkindly. You ever had that? It's just an unkind word. It's not like it's a mass murder, and yet you're convicted over it. You know that that's not the way Christ would speak. That's a sign that you're in the kingdom of heaven right there. Isn't that an amazing statement? As opposed to what you were thinking from 1 John, it's like, oh, I must not be a, a Christian because I spoke unkindly. Actually, it's a sign that you are a Christian because you're convicted over the fact that you spoke an unkind word. When he or she looks lustfully or covetously, there's a prick. There's a signal in your soul. That is darkness and I'm light. And you agree and you repent. When the saint thinks too highly of him or herself, or when the saint makes the choice to take the better portion for him or herself and give the lesser portion to another. I could go on and on and on as far as the list. But they are... Behaviors in the soul that are latent selfishness that God is purging. In the progression, when Jesus comes, there becomes less of me and more of him. Less of me, more of him. The picture in Ezekiel, where the ever-deepening river, we enter into more of God, and as a result, there's less of us. Less of us, less of us. Less of that old behavior, more of his behavior. Less of the old, more of the new. It's called sanctification. And I, you know, one of the dangers that a pastor always deals with is you don't want to have a sanctification be an excuse. And so you almost want to pull back and say, you should be perfect right now. I, I don't want to tell my kids, oh, it's all right if you misbehave and, and don't obey daddy. 
That's just part of your sanctification. We just want to bring the rebellion to the surface. That's, that's not true either. I still desire them to do that which is right, but when they do that which is wrong, a good father will attend to that. I don't say, oh, you're not my son. You never were my son. But I actually prove that they are my son in and through those micro-corrections of their soul. And so as a result, I'm calling that lowercase s not because it's not bad. I don't want it to diminish in how severe it can be in our life if we don't tend to it and we don't heed the Father. But the point being, we have to recognize that for the rest of our life, we will have that dross coming to the surface. And how do we appropriate John chapter 3 if that's the case? Or 1 John chapter 3. A saint is set free from the power and control of capital S sin. Capital S sin, you could desire to do that which is right, but you have no power to do it. You're a slave to sin. But a child of God is no longer a slave. Though they can still make bad decisions, they actually have power and grace to do that which is right. Which leads to a higher level of accountability. Now I should do what my father is asking me to do. A saint is set free from the power and control of capital S sin and is being purified from the presence of the lowercase s sins that sit like dross in his or her inner man. This lowercase matter comes out through the process of abiding and obeying and in loving Christ. For a saint is a child of a good father who seeks to save his children to the uttermost. Have you ever had the thought that God will purposely put you into situations to show you your ever... Uh, your need of a savior that is always there and that you are not finished. You know, when you don't have children, you can start to feel like you're completely sanctified or when you're not married. How about that? We'll start with that. You're not married. You're a single person. You know, I was actually doing pretty good as a single person. I was traveling the world and I was sharing the gospel. I still had my issues. Don't get me wrong. God was still showing me this, but it's like, you know what? I think I'd make a great husband. The way I'm loving this sinner, I'll love my wife that way. You know, just unconditional love. They could do whatever they want. They could spit in my face and I'll still love. And then you get married and your wife doesn't spit in your face. She just doesn't do it, you know, say the words exactly the way you would have wanted them said. And you get upset and aggravated. It's like, what is that? What's wrong with me? Dross is coming to the surface. And then right when you think you have your Christianity figured out, a baby pops out. And, you know, you're in the hospital ward, and they're saying, so this child needs to be fed every two hours. Two? Every two hours? What do you do during the night? You get up. <laughs> I, what? What's that? In other words, it's not, it doesn't have to be capital S sin that causes us to panic. In other words, it could be lowercase s. It's like, oh, I've never actually been that selfless in my life. And that is brought to the surface, and it actually is beautiful. It is not a bad thing that you struggle with it. It's just that if you left the baby in there and said, I don't care about you. You will not eat for three days. I'm getting some sleep. That's a bad sign. In other words, it's working on you. It's proving weakness in you and your need for greater strength from God. And as a saint... We delight in that. We delight in the fact that we even chuckle with God and have a laughing relationship with God and say, oh, you set me up for this one, God. Thank you. You are my Savior ever and always. I cannot live without you. Without you, I can do nothing. You cannot be 
well married without Jesus Christ. You cannot be a great parent without Jesus Christ. No matter how much training, no matter book learning you get on these topics, you cannot be a great leader of the church without dependency upon the power of God to do it. I don't care how talented you are. God has to prove that to us. So how does he prove it? Oh, he sets us up. He gets us in those perfect situations. Like, God, why am I going through this? I got you. Uh, you're reminding me. I need you to do this. For a saint is a child of a good father who seeks to save his children to the uttermost. The sinner and the saint. Which one are you? Now, I, I recognize the last thing we want to say is that we're saints. It sounds so much more spiritual to say we're sinners. However, I want you to be watchful of that. You were a sinner who was saved by grace. So I do not want to diminish the fact that, yes, everyone outside of Christ is, by definition, capital S, sinner. However, everyone that is found in Christ, and that's why I wish I had a small version of the S in the saint, is a small S saint in the capital S. We are made saints. We are made holy. We are made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's a startling reality. And yet, as the small s saints in the capital S saint, God is still sanctifying us. He is making us brighter saints, being conformed into the image of our beloved Jesus. A review of the Apostle John's test. So I want us to read through this afresh. I know, it's a whole chapter in the Bible. It just seems like a lot. Uh, But I want to read it through afresh with this lens, capital S and lowercase. And I want us to be able to have our joy be made full. Because isn't that the point of why John's writing it? That our joy would be made full, and yet most of us, our joy is not brimming full when we read through 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. I mean, you should get excited about that right there. You're, you're a little panicky right now because you don't know if you should call yourself a child of God because you know what's ahead. And so you're like, well, I, I would. I, I would behold what love, yeah, but I don't know if I'm a child of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. You know what? If I could define what it's like, I have a deep desire. There are times when, like for instance, Leslie brought up something about more children. It was just a comment. But my response to it showed something in me. I love children. I really do. And I, I did some uh, searching on when a quiver is full. Uh, and the answer I laughed at, it said, when you can't fit, it, fit any more in. I was like, okay, mine's full. <laughs> now, that said, that said, I noticed something when Leslie asked the question, and that is a propensity. Why would I back up? Because of the challenge that is inerrant in starting again with a little baby. It's, it's hard. And you freshly have to die to self. There are more complications. Now I have to have greater faith for provision. It's hard enough to have provision for sex. 
kids, let alone seven. Last time I opened myself up to, by the way, we got double and got two at once. God, I don't know. You could be going into triplicates now. I'm, I'm concerned about this. And I find myself self-preserving. Not in this sense. Not in absolute rebellion. Because if you asked me, Eric, if God asked you to have another child, would you be willing? Yeah. And so even I, when I see that propensity, allow the Holy Spirit to touch it, I wrangle a little wrestle with him and go, God, how can I do all these things and that? He says, Eric, I'm testing you right now. I want to touch something in you. If I desired you to have one more, I'll give you the grace for it. You know that, don't you? I do. Well, I do. But what am I seeing throughout the whole process? I'm seeing my weakness afresh. And I'm falling afresh upon his grace and his mercy. And I know he has a smile on his face. See, I don't feel the disapproval of a father as he sees that in me. I see him going... Hmm. Yeah, I brought that one up. I had your wife ask you that question. So we could remove that dross. All right, Eric, you know, you're getting a little cozy in your six-kid setup here. I'm getting cozy? I sure don't feel cozy. Yep, get a little too cozy, sort of like Gideon's army. Yep, you have a little too many of 30,000. They have 185. A little too cozy. Let's cut that down to 10. A little too cozy, Gideon. Let's cut that down to 300. 300? God has to test us, saying, who do you trust in? Do you believe it is the strength of your hand, your might, that will carry out the mission of the king in this generation? No. It's your strength that will do it. And so as we walk through this journey, we find that we will purify ourselves. And that's basically the concept. He brings it to the surface. What do we do? We repent. He brings it to the surface. We repent. Let's get that dross out of here. That's what he's saying. Move it out. Repent of it. So when you are a child of God, you don't desire to justify your dross and let it harden back into a metallic substance. You say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing me that. Clear it out. Repent. Believe. So, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin, now I'm going to add this, whoever commits capital S sin, also commits lawlessness. You defy the living God. You snub your nose at him and say, I don't care what your word says. I will live as I want to live. That is what's called in scripture lawlessness. What we were describing is not lawlessness. It is coming under a higher law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that receives conviction and readily receives it, joyfully receives it as a child. My children are happier after they receive a discipline. They're not too happy when they know they're about to receive a discipline. But they are happier when they know that they are right with their father and mother. When they have confessed it, when they've made things right and sought forgiveness, they actually are happy. And that's the way we can live as Christians. We are not in defiance of God, which, by the way, is not a happy position. These people may look happy in Hollywood. But when you defy God and you say, I will live as I want to do, and you literally go out of your way to mar a culture against God... You are not happy. That's why the suicide rate is so high. They cannot find what they're looking for. I have a father. His name is Abba. I have found what I'm looking for. I am fully satisfied in a simple life of serving him. But Eric, uh, people don't like you. You're a Christian. You're like one of those loudmouthed ones too. 
and you know, you don't have the luxuries. You don't get to do just whatever you want. You're a Christian. You don't get to just sin freely. You're like convicted over it. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm so happy. You see, I am happy because I have a father. And because I desire him to speak in my life. And because I desire to please him and be close with him. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Capital S. Think about it. If you abide in Christ, can you be a capital S sinner? That's impossible. Any more than my kids can be a capital S sinner in my home. It's like, I will do what I want. Oh boy, daddy would be all over that. Okay, you cannot abide in this home, even the loony home, and be a capital S rebeller against the home, against the order of it. You know, every time you sit down to dinner, you flip the table over and throw the plate. Guess who would be all over that? A good father. If you're my child, I'm going to make sure that's out. You see, if we are children of God, we cannot retain our capital S defiance and rebellion. We gave that up. Don't you remember? You gave that up. Now you want to sit at the table. Though you may spill your milk, he very graciously says, okay, let's do that again. And he will give us a sippy cup if we need it. (laughs) However, he loves us. He desires us in fellowship. He desires us at that table. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. If you are living in capital S rebellion, you obviously have never beheld the goodness and the graciousness of God. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. He who practices righteousness. What is the tenor of your life? What is the overriding statement of your life? Are you waking up every day with a desire to sin? Or are you waking up every day with a desire to heed and to exercise what God is teaching you? It's called practicing righteousness. It doesn't mean being perfectly righteous. It means you are practicing righteousness. You're practicing obedience. You're practicing humility. Everything that the Spirit of God is working, you desire to do. Do you do it perfectly? You can answer that. But it does not exclude you from being his child. Your imperfections are not what the focus is here. It is the fact that the overarching tenor and message of your life is, I want Jesus to be seen in me. I want fellowship, unhindered fellowship with him. I am weak, but he is strong. I have unrighteousness still being worked out of me, but he is righteous, and I put my faith firmly in his ability to save this work in process. Uh, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. So, if you have transferred from this kingdom into this kingdom, you do not have capital S sin ruling in your life. You cannot continue to love that which is evil and delight in sin. You can't. You can't. It does not mean you will not have lowercase s rise to the surface. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and, the murder, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. This is an interesting test point. And that is, this, this group of people, now I'm not trying to make any type of statements. Uh, you just need to listen to it with sort of humor on your ears. We're a funny gathering of people. There is a lot of unloveliness in the midst of us too, okay? In other words, you know that you have that lowercase s dross in you and you can't figure out why God has put up with you. Well, imagine if we all combine together. We got some work in process here. And yet God says one of the symbols of the childhood that we know we have in Christ is the same way God loves us in our imperfect state. We love each other in that imperfect state. That's actually one of the signals. In other words, we have received that love of God, and where does it first cascade? Onto those also that are loved of God. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Hatred is not an attribute of the kingdom of heaven. We cannot hang out over here and hate our brother. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. Isn't that an interesting statement? And shall assure our hearts before him. There's something about that, to be assured in our hearts that we are, in fact, children of God. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So John writes that the saints' joy may be full. Now I want you to listen to this as a statement of lowercase s, as John is starting. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness. In other words, you've moved into a house in which is full light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, well, we lie and do not practice the truth. Because when you enter into that, you know how you ought to live. So if you are practicing righteousness, you're not going to continue to live in rebellion. You cannot continue to live in defiance. If you say you are a child of God, there are simple proofs. You cannot continue to live in capital S sin. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now it's interesting because talking about walking in the light, what happens when you walk in the light? Deeds of darkness are lifted to the surface. And so we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all of it. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, just imagine, okay? Now, I know when you see that, it's easy to think capital S sin. But I want you to put a lowercase s into that exact statement and just ponder it for a second. If we say that we have no little lowercase s sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's a fact. 
It is. In other words, are you finished? Is God done with you? The moment you think he is is the moment that you are the greatest chief of the sinners. Right there. Because we are not the Savior. We are not the perfected Adam. He is. We are being perfected. We are given the grace for everything we need in life and godliness. In other words, everything we need to do that which is right, we have been given. However, there is a very real fact at play. And that is that there is dross that still needs to be removed. There is chaff that still needs to be knocked off of us. That's why you see these illustrations all throughout Scripture. You see, God understands how he made us, and he knows that refinement, that purifying, the tribulation, by the way, it says tribulation worketh. Patience, right? What's tribulation? It's literally the work of a tribular upon the, the harvest to knock off the husk, to knock off the shell, because we still have it. But God doesn't throw us out because we have chaff. He purifies us because he's a good vine dresser and he prunes the branch so it can bring forth more fruit. He doesn't look at a branch that has small fruit and then cut it off and throw it into the fire. It's abiding in the vine. And since it's abiding, he is going to love it. He's going to care for it. If that branch is in defiance, saying, I don't need that vine. That vine, I'm sorry, that branch needs the vine. But if that branch is producing pathetic fruit, but it's abiding... It's hanging on saying, well, that's my father. I'm not a very good son. Does not mean he's not a son. It just means that he needs to receive from the father that correction. He needs to heed that. The discipline is good. It's a sign of life. Oh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, there's the facts right there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Introducing the tenor. So three years ago, I gave a message called the tenor. It was on this theme. A singing voice. A tenor is a singing voice between baritone and alto or counter tenor and the highest of the ordinary adult male range. That isn't the definition we're using today. That which holds the melody, the main thrust of a song. It's not really what we're using today, even though it's fascinating. This is third definition is the one I want you to land on. That which marks a central character of one's life or habits. Capital S sin, does that mark the character of your life? It's the, cent- it's the tenor of your existence on earth. Or, though it be imperfect, a desire to know your Jesus. A desire to reveal him to the world. Which one marks your tenor? Rebellion or submission? Even though it be imperfect. Even a rebellious person can do good deeds. But that does not mean that they've transferred from darkness into light. And even one that is a saint can do bad things. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't transferred from darkness into light. Tenor number one, we're going to just call him self. We called him the sinner earlier. He's the self-singing tenor. The essence of sin is that we do it all out of self for self. We sit on the throne. It's a throne that was meant for Jesus Christ. The second tenor is the one who bends his knee and gives that rightful position of central control to the king of kings. So this is the Christ singing tenor, the essence of righteousness. So since a tenor is both the overarching quality of a life, and it's also a singing voice, I figured I'd stick the singing voice in here. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, which is tenor number one, 
became a living being. The last Adam, tenor two, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, tenor number two, is not first. We do not start over here. We start over here. We start singing the wrong song. So, however, the spiritual, or tenor number two, is not first, but the natural, tenor number one, and afterward the spiritual. The first man, tenor number one, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, tenor number two, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, tenor number one, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, tenor two, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, tenor number one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Jesus answered and said unto him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we have self-fulfillment versus God-fulfillment. In other words, the capital S sinner is all about his own fulfillment. This is for me. This is what I desire. And that is why many of us can identify with that. I mean, that's, that's our life. We're familiar with it. We've created deep habit patterns in regards to self And so when we transfer kingdoms, we still feel that, like when Leslie asks about another child. I find that I have lingering residue of that old man that lingers and says, uh, think about yourself, Eric. Think about how difficult that would be for you. Think about how challenging that could be. That's an inconvenience. Yeah, yeah. If I listen to that voice for a second, well, that's somewhat normal. If I continue... When the Spirit of God touches us, says, Eric, what's that? Because he is light and there's no darkness in him. The fact that I had a thought turn in my head and the Holy Spirit is convicting me of it is a sign that I have transferred and that I actually agree with God. God, you're right. That's a wrong thought. I just, I'm scared not to have it because I, I don't know what you're going to do. Or you're going to give me more children. I love children. I love my children. Versus God fulfillment. For whoever says, for, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. This statement is replete through scripture. You see how many times it's referenced. I mean, this is amazing. This is like a huge statement in scripture. The word for fulfillment uh, in that or for life is suke, which means the breath of life, the soul, the center of feeling and longing, or the seat of fulfillment. Are you seated here in self saying, I want what I want and I will get what I want? Or have you given up that position and you say, even though you struggle with it at times, God, I want what you want and what you desire, I will support. I just need your grace and I need you to take me by the hand and walk me through this. You see, we are feeble and weak, but there is a desire within us. I can say for myself, I desire him to get his due in my life. Do I argue a little at times? Do I hesitate? Yes. Is that good? No. It's incorrect behavior. But he shows me that. And I don't want to continue to do that. I don't want to justify it. Oh, I'll always hesitate. That's just normal. Well, it may be normal in Adam, but it's not normal in Christ. Christ wants to purify me. There are things that I do not hesitate at anymore that I used to, but there's still things I hesitate at. He's working in me. He's constantly growing me up and maturing me. The change of song, from death metal lyrics to a Sunday school round of Jesus Loves Me. So over here, you have your black t-shirt with a skull on it, and uh, maybe some earrings. You got uh, all sorts of stuff all over your body dangling, right? And you're in defiance of God. You love death. 
It always mystifies me. I've never been one of those guys that just wears black, right? And so it's always strange, but it's very real. And it's a spiritual state. It's in direct defiance to God saying, I, I don't want life. I choose death. I remember one person saying, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell. I was like, don't, don't say that. It was right in our office over there. I was like, ah. And because I want, all my friends are going to hell and I want to party with them. This side is lying, is, is, is being lied to. Hell is not going to be a party, guys. It's eternal condemnation. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't want to go here. However, when you are over here, you have a song, and the tenor of your life is death metal lyrics. That's just my illustration. I'm not actually trying to make a statement about singing. Over here, you change songs. And now your song is Jesus Loves Me. It's a very different song, very different lyrics. However, you can sing it poorly. Did you know that it's possible to sing Jesus Loves Me poorly and off-key? You can. But guess what? It's a different song. So don't let the devil come in and judge you according to the fact that you're singing death metal lyrics when you're actually not. You're just singing Jesus loves me poorly. (laughs) The tenor changes, the lyrics change, the entire song is different. But is the Sunday school round of Jesus loves me perfect? You can answer that. Uh, Both can hit off notes. When you're over here, you can hit off notes. But when you're over here, you can still hit off notes. Both can be too loud. You ever been with one of those guys? I, was, I used to have a friend. We'd go to like Denny's restaurant, and he was so loud. And I would always feel you know, awkward as he was talking. And people, even people would come over, shh, could you guys keep it down over here? I'm like, yeah, sorry. It's like, did you hear that? <laughs> Both can be too loud. This guy loved Jesus, though. He's loud, and that's not correct, but he loves Jesus. It can be too loud. Both can involve spittle and splattering peepops. When you're in the recording studio, they put a little peepopper in front of you. Uh, and to, to sort of diminish the peas. We could have pee sounds that aren't appropriate in Jesus Loves Me. I don't even know if there are any peas in Jesus Loves Me, but you have to use your imagination. Both can have broken guitar strings. You're right, right in this key part of the song, and ping! Well, is it good that there's a broken guitar string? No. But the world doesn't come to an end. Okay, let's correct that. Now, if you just kept bringing, you know, cutting them, ding, ding, I don't care how this sounds, banging your guitar. It's like you're probably showing signs over here again. Let's not do that. Both can be sung wrongly. We can sing. We could have some bad doctrine in our Jesus Loves Me song. However, we want to sing a different song. We're willing to sing a different song. We desire to sing it well. So when we hit a wrong note, we don't just keep hitting a wrong note. If you've ever been in the recording studio, Leslie and I have done a lot of albums. What do you do? Take two. Take three with Eric. Take 762. (laughs) But when the song is changed, it is obvious to the singer and to the audience, though it be an imperfect version of Jesus Loves Me, the song is entirely different. The tenor has changed. Though the song is not being sung yet the way tenor two fully intends. So I'm going to finish with this. David Wilkerson and the Heroin Addict. So David Wilkerson, if you've ever read Cross of the Switchblade, it is a profound book. I mean, I, Leslie and I will typically uh, listen to the audio of that well, once a year or so. And uh, we'll usually go through about two-thirds of it and then switch to the next book. It doesn't mean the last third isn't, isn't good, but that first two-thirds is like gold for us. And uh, there's a story in there because he has 
David Wilkerson was working on the streets of New York City dealing with drug addicts. And I mean, people in extreme situations that were caught in capital S sin and the extreme versions of it. Most of us don't understand maybe the extreme versions of capital S sin. So we don't understand the distinction of going from this into this at such a wild level. I mean, what we were seeing, what you see in that book is quite profound, quite amazing. And so one of the things that they began to experiment with, because heroin, you just cannot physically come off of heroin. Heroin rules you until you die, basically. And so you can be hospitalized, but there is actually no solution for a heroin addict outside of death, basically. I mean, you can mitigate against it. You can keep them in a bed and keep them from the heroin, lock them down, but they still have the cravings. They still have everything from their first state, their first man. That sin within them has them. It, they are a slave to it. So David Wilkerson recognized there's no solution for these guys, yet he has loads of them. He has loads of men and women that either have no hope in life, even though they came to Jesus, or there's still his hope. And what he found is that there is a solution for heroin. You know that he proved it? It's one of the reasons that book was written, is to literally show the power of God to break a chain, a cyclical pattern of addiction that no human has up to that point had been able to overcome. And it was by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. When these men were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they literally were given a power over their body, and they were delivered, even though it sometimes took a process from heroin addiction. That's quite a statement that I just made there. So... There was one of the guys, and I forgot his name. I, I should have looked this up before I, I added it to the message. This is the last second thing. Literally, I put this in and then push send uh, today. I was like, this would be an interesting way to finish. So this man, let's call him Billy Bob. Okay? <laughs> his name is Billy Bob. Now, there's probably someone like, that's my real name. <laughs> so Billy Bob was a heroin addict. And he came to David Wilkerson's ministry and was changed, dramatically altered by the gospel, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Literally, these chains were broken. And they recommend that they stay in that unit for a couple years because usually around the year point, they found there was a, a powerful move of the devil against their life to bring them back into an old pattern. And so to go through that year point, but at, at any point in time, they can leave. They're, they're not there because someone forced them to be there, that you know, there was some legal decree that they had to be in this home. They're there by their own choice. So at a year, Billy Bob uh, felt like he was fine. And so they counseled him and said, you're right at sort of a crucial time, and we would encourage you to stay a little longer because what you're going through right now is maybe not the healthiest to just go right back out there. And he said, I'm going to be fine. I think he had someone to visit. I don't remember what the story was, but... Uh, that's not the part of the story I wanted to pass on anyways. And so Billy Bob leaves, even though they counseled him not to, and word gets back to them that he went straight to get heroin. And you can just imagine as a ministry, you know, as a leader in a ministry, I can, I can feel that. You invest so much of your life, and to see someone return as a dog to vomit, oh, the pain in that. And they didn't see this guy. Billy Bob disappeared for quite some time. Then he came back. He came back sheepishly, tail between his legs, and humbly comes to the door, and David Wilkerson comes down. Billy, Billy Bob. That's <laughs> uh, not his name, by the way. Just remember that. You're going to read the story and go, Eric said it was Billy Bob. What is and here was his story. He went to get heroin. He took the heroin. 
though he knew he shouldn't. And it was miserable. There was no delight in it. There was no satisfaction in it. And he recognized he can't return to his sin. And so he's been hiding out miserable with his tail between his legs thinking, I can't go back to my teachers because how can I? After they poured so much into me and then look what I did. See, how many of us can identify with Billy Bob right there? You know that you actually, that's the number one signal to Billy Bob that he is a child of God. What is it? He can't return to his sin. He's miserable over here. There is no more pleasure of sin for a season. It's gone. That season's over. He has now tasted of something better. And though he has a propensity and a pull towards doing boneheaded things, when he does them, he really wishes he didn't do them. And Billy Bob needs to know the love of a father. He needs to know that just like the prodigal's father, the father is fogging up the windows. The father knows he's in pig slop, but that doesn't change the fact that that's his son. And he is going to wait and long, and when he sees him around the bend, when he sees that familiar gate, he's going to bust out of that home and start running. That's the father that we serve. Though we have served him imperfectly, he has perfectly served us. And he will save us to the uttermost. He ever lives to make intercession for us. That is the facts. Capital S sin has once ruled us. But it rules us no more. If you are still being ruled by capital S sin, you'd probably know it. But there is a remedy, and his name is Jesus Christ. At any juncture of time, you can turn and repent. But for those of us that are struggling with the condemnation from the devil, not from God, over the fact that our lives have not walked the narrow way perfectly, and we find ourselves going into ditches, he has a shepherd's rod, and he taps us on the backside. And he says, uh, <clears throat> ditch, ditch. He loves us too much to allow us. That's why you're convicted. He loves you. You need to know that today. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com. E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E dot com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.